Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you interested in keeping green wood green? Do you struggle to mark straight, even tapers on table legs? Are your tenon shoulders out of flat, causing you to question the need to recut them? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 16 of the show for December 13th, 2017. Before I start today's show, I just want to take a minute to thank all the folks who support the show over on Patreon, including Bill Elliott, Arcadius Joukowsky, Bill Warnock, Krister Kay, Lawrence Polinski, Jeff Skiles, Joe Delorier, Jens Rosendahl, Matt McGrain, Jared Tolan, and Chris Barnes. Thank you everyone for your generous support of the show. And if you'd like to support the show, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. So it probably comes as no surprise that I don't really have anything... Uh, to share with you from the shop this week, um, I am still, you know, working on the cabin. And if you've uh, been listening to the show for any period of time, you probably know all about that. If you're new to the show, uh, the the short of it is that my family and I are in the process of of building a new log cabin. And due to some unforeseen circumstances, we are now building the doing the most the majority of the work ourselves. So, uh, for the most part, if I'm not working my full time nine to five. Uh, I'm up at the cabin on the other end of the property working on that. So uh, I haven't really gotten too much time in the shop uh, probably since the summer. So, And I don't see that happening probably until next summer. So, uh, yeah, I won't have too many uh, shop updates to provide for a while. Um, I will provide an update in terms of the podcast. So this will be the last episode for the year. I won't be putting out another podcast in December with the holidays coming up. Things are just going to be crazy. We're going to do, be doing some uh, some traveling. So uh, this will be the, the last episode of the podcast for the year, but we will pick it back up in January, hopefully shortly after the new year. So I got some feedback to share with you this week. And the first one is a voicemail from Jim. Hi, Bob. My name is Jim. I'm, I actually saw your name in an article in... Um, popular woodworking magazine farm before figure and i like the little chest shown in the photograph i'm trying to find out more about it i wonder if you could tell me if where that chest is museum or something maybe so jim that uh that chest was it that william and mary um panel chest was it's a piece that is actually for sale in a place called hl shell font antiques in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Uh, they graciously allowed me to use the photo for the magazine article. Um, but the piece, at least as of the time I was writing the article, was still for sale. And they do have some information about it on their website. Uh, and I will put a link to that in the show notes. Um, and they do have some dimensions of the piece on the website as well. So I'll put a link to um where that where you can find more information on that chest in the show notes uh, to the podcast. So our next feedback comes from Alexander. 
And he says, in episode 15 of the podcast, you discussed drawer construction on serpentine front furniture. I've read one more approach to this construction. This would be for a drawer where the inside is shaped to match the outside. You use thinner stock, like one inch or so, and you make a series of cross cuts about halfway through the piece. Those cuts serve to ease the bending process. You make the kerfs, put glue in the, in the cuts, bend it on a form, and let it dry. I've never done this myself, but it looks like it would be no more complicated than a bent lamination. As far as I know, the technique would be used for veneer drawer fronts. So thank you, Alexander, for that. Yep, indeed, um, you can use a, a, the process known as kerf bending, um, where you would make cross cuts on the backside. Well, in the case of a serpentine front, you would have to make cross cuts on the backside and the front side. So it would really depend on what the curve looked like. But you need to make your kerf cuts in the concave part uh, of the curve when you make the bend. Um, I think with a serpentine, it might be a little challenging to get consistent curves this way if you were making something with multiple drawers. Um, if you were going to do something with a single drawer, I think it would certainly be a viable option. Um, and then you could just make, once you, I would, what I would do if you were going to use a technique like this is to make the drawer front first um, and then veneer it and, and actually finish the drawer front. Um, and then make the drawer blades to match the drawer front because it's going to be easier to make the, the drawer front first and match the drawer blades afterwards than it is going to be to try to get uh, the bend in a kerf, in a kerf bending type of, of uh, scenario a perfect match to something else. Um, similarly, I would think if you're making a, a chest of drawers, you're going to have some challenges there to getting the bends to be nice and consistent from one to the next. Um, you would definitely need to use some sort of form. And I would suggest um, dry bending first before you put the glue in and clamp it to the form to make sure that when you do the bending and that it's going to bend, you know, as much as you need it to. Um, and you'll be able to get those curves to close up enough. Um, like I said, it can be a bit of trial and error to figure out how many curves you need, how close those curves need to be to each other, and it all and how deep those curves need to be. And it really all depends on how tight the curves need to be, how wide the drawer is, et cetera, et cetera. So you probably it would probably take a couple of uh, of trials to to work that out before doing it on the finished piece. So I would definitely make a couple practice pieces first, um, and then to your point it would definitely be used for a veneered drawer front. Um, you would want to, after bending it, you would need to veneer the front and the back and probably put some type of cock beading or something like that along the edges as well to cover those curves. So the, the kerf cut and bent piece would essentially form the substrate for a veneered and cock beaded drawer um, where you would, you would cover up all six faces and edges and ends of the uh, of the drawer front after the bending and veneering was done um, in order to cover up those curves. But uh, great suggestion, and uh, thanks for sending that in. So let's go ahead and get into the mailbox for this week. Our first question comes from Chuck. Chuck says, I enjoyed your recent podcast on green woodworking, and I am wondering how you preserve green wood for future projects to keep it from drying out. Is freezing small billets an option? So good question, Chuck. Um, what I will say first and foremost is that 
you're only going to preserve them in their green state for so long, no matter what you do. Um, but there are certain things you can do that will help to preserve the, the greenness of the wood longer. Freezing is certainly an option, uh, but even in a freezer, eventually that moisture will be driven out um, and the, the wood will start to dry and the working properties will change. Um, think about, you know, if you put food in the freezer for too long and it gets freezer burned, essentially the moisture from the food itself is is evaporating. Even in a freezer, moisture can still evaporate. If you've ever had uh, some ice cubes that you've made and you put them in a tray in the freezer and then a few weeks later you go back and uh, and you look and the ice cubes are all small, um, that's because the, the evaporation still did occur because freezers go through defrost cycles. So you are still going to get some evaporation um, and some drying of that lumber in the freezer. It will slow. It will be slower in the freezer for sure, um, but it is still going to happen nonetheless. So um, if it's if the wood is in the freezer for too long, the working properties are going to begin to change. Um, certainly, I would recommend painting the end grain of anything that you cut down. So if you cut yourself a log um, or some branches or whatever, um, I would say get the end grain sealed up. You can dip it in, in hot melted wax is a, is a really good way to seal up end grain. You can use latex paint, um, anchor seal. There's a lot of different different types of ways you can seal up the end grain uh, because it, the moisture leaves most quickly through the end grain. Um, the other thing you're going to want to do is to leave the pieces as large as possible. So if you're cutting down a tree, for example, let's say you've got yourself a, you know, a, a three foot long log that, you know, in the round, and you're going to split that up into, you know, some, some parts for a Windsor chair or something like that. So make the first split to split it in half and maybe split off just what you need, leave the rest of the log as in as big pieces as you can leave it um, because the the more mass and the, and the larger you leave your pieces the longer it's going to take them to dry out so you'll maintain some of those green working characteristics longer if you can keep the parts in a in a as big a piece as possible if you split everything out they're going to dry much much faster so uh, definitely leave things in, in log form and leave it in as, as big of a piece as you can until you're ready to use it. One thing that, that I've seen and heard of some folks doing um, who have access to, say, a pond or something like that, is to sink the, um, the material in a pond. Uh, because by soaking it, sitting it and soaking it in water, you're really going to prevent the evaporation altogether. So if you can submerge the pieces in water and just let them sit there. They won't rot because the air can't get to them. Um, and that moisture won't leave the wood because the, you know, uh, science tells us, you know, the concentration of water is then higher on the outside of the log than it is on the inside of the log. So there's no reason for that moisture to leave the log. Um, so if you have access to a pond or a swimming pool or a large pool of water, um, if the pieces are small enough to get into five gallon buckets or whatever, you can store them but they need to be completely submerged so they're not um, exposed to the air at all because if they are exposed to the air, they'll begin to rot. Um, so you want to make sure they're completely exposed, uh, completely submerged and not exposed to any air. Um, and you can store green logs and keep them in green working condition for a long time if you uh, keep them completely submerged in water. 
So our next question comes from Scott. Scott says, I'm trying to make tapered octagonal legs for some chairs out of the anarchist design book by Chris Schwartz. And the first time that I tried to lay out the legs with a 24 inch ruler, I found it extremely difficult to hold the ruler on such a narrow work surface. At that point, I thought about how much easier it would be with some kind of chalk line if I could snap a straight line. But a normal construction chalk line I thought would be far too coarse. Then I happened upon a chalk line offered by Lee Valley Tools that claims to have a very narrow knit line that appears to be more for furniture makers. Have you ever used this tool or do you know anyone who has and what are your thoughts on using something like a chalk line to lay out furniture parts? So Scott, I've never used the, the chalk line that you mentioned uh, personally. I have used a regular construction chalk line to mark long straight cuts in warped boards um, in, in rough sawn lumber. So um, if I've got a, a board that's got a warp in it and uh, that needs to be worked out, um, I might saw that out instead of trying to plane it out when I'm planing up rough lumber. And the easiest way I found to do that is to lay a chalk line down, especially if it's a, a rather long board, um, and then saw to that chalk line. And that gives me a nice straight cut to start with. Now, I've also seen um, furniture makers in the Japanese tradition, they use an ink line. Um, and that's fairly common as well. Furniture makers and temple builders and shoji makers, um, they use an ink line, and it's very similar to our chalk line. So um, it's certainly not unheard of to use a chalk line in furniture making. Um, but I actually have a better suggestion for you, and that would be to go online and Google spar marking gauge. What this essentially is, it's, it's a gauge that's designed for making boat spars or ship spars, which are the masts, sort of like the masts that hold the sails. Well, traditionally, those spars would be tapered, octagonal in shape. So they developed gauges, the, the boat makers, the ship makers, developed gauges to quickly and easily lay out just about any size tapered octagon. Um, and in a, in a nutshell, what it is, is if you imagine a piece of wood and you had two posts or two dowels sticking out of that stick of wood between those two dowels, evenly spaced, or, or I don't want to say evenly spaced. I'm, I'm not going to give you any measurements because it's really going to depend on the size of the stock that you're using. But, um, you know, if you go online, they'll tell you the Google will tell you how to make it. Believe me, I've seen I've seen many uh, examples of uh, of a spar marking gauge. But between those two dowels are two points, like you would have in a marking gauge. Could be finished nails, or or if you want to go crazy and make them uh, hardened, you know, marking knife pins, you can use that as well. And what you do is you place this gauge over top of your uh, your stock that you're going to be tapering. And you turn it so that the dowels contact the stock on either side. So one dowel would contact the leg stock on the left side. One dowel would contact the leg stock on the right side. And you keep that kind of twisting force. You want to keep those dowels in contact as you're using the gauge. Keep those dowels in contact with the two sides of the leg. And the beauty of it is as you run the gauge down the tapered the square tapered leg, it lays out perfect uh, scribe lines for where you need to get to to have a perfect tapered octagon. So the only um, 
the only thing with the, the spar marking gauge is that you need to first lay out a uh, four-sided taper. So you need to, to make your four-sided tapered leg first, and then you use the spar gauge to help you make the marks for tapering to an octagon. Um, and if you use that gauge and plane to those mark lines, you'll have yourself a perfect tapered octagon just about every time. So our next question comes from Bill. Bill says, I'm wondering when you would decide to recut a tenon. I'm trying to fit the crest rail on the back of a chair. My tenon shoulders are not a clean fit. Fiddling with the shoulders with a chisel is not producing flat shoulders. Should I just move down a small bit and recut the shoulders? My preference is to avoid recutting since I'm a little worried about lowering the crest rail. But for the life of me, my lack of skill is giving me pause on whether or not I can get the tenon shoulders flat. So... My first uh, question, Bill, would be, are the tenon shoulders supposed to be square? Um, sometimes in chairs, if the, if the back legs that come up into the crest rail, crest rail have some splay to them, they're not really supposed to be square. So um, I would definitely make sure that the angle that you're supposed to be working at is square in the first place. If not, um, you're going to want to rescribe your shoulder lines to the correct angle first. So what I would suggest before you go recutting them, and you can certainly do that. Um, I don't know that it's going to be any easier um, than what I'm going to suggest though, to, you know, to resaw them. Um, so what I would suggest is make sure, you, you know, get a bevel gauge um, or use your combination square or your tri-square first and make sure that that angle between the, the legs that are going into the crest rail and the crest rail itself is actually a 90 degree angle. If it is, you're good to go to lay out the shoulders with your square. If it's not, you're going to need to lay those shoulders out with a bevel because um, you're never going to get a gap free fit if the, if the, the angle between the crest rail and the legs is not square. Now, what I would suggest doing once you know that angle, whether it's square or whether you need to use a bevel gauge is to come down slightly, maybe a 32nd of an inch or so, and just rescribe the shoulders with a knife. Um, don't worry about recutting them with the saw, just rescribe them with the knife. As long as you have everything marked properly, you should be able to pare down to that line with a chisel and get a nice tight fit. You just need to make sure that you don't go past that new scribe line. Um, you know, if you're familiar with Robert Wearing's book and what he describes as a first-class saw cut, this is essentially it. You So I would suggest scribing down to that line, uh, scribing a new shoulder line with a knife, make that scribe a couple of times, and each time go progressively deeper with the cut so that when you're finished scribing the line, you've got a really nice crisp scribe line that goes good and deep and is going to give you registration for the chisel. The next thing I want you to do is to kind of break off the edge of that scribe. Use your finger, use a chisel, whatever. Don't go chopping or paring or any, you know, any of the waste um, above, below that scribe line. I just want you to break away the crumbs to the, the, the depth of the scribe line. And what you're going to find is you're going to have a nice flat reference for your chisel to ref reference off of. Now, once you have that, that is the area where your shoulder needs to meet the crest rail. All of that rest of that material um, is not going to matter. So that 
the um, the interior part of that tenon shoulder doesn't necessarily have to be perfectly flat and square to the face of the of the leg or the or the board that has the tenon on it. So what I would suggest you do is to pare away that material, but slightly pare it slightly undercut, so that all that material in the middle of the shoulder, right up against the tendon cheek and edge itself, is actually kind of hollowed out. Not a lot, just slightly lower than the outside of the shoulder that you scribed with the knife. What that's going to ensure is that when you go and you put that tenon back into the mortise, if everything is cut right and your tenon fits right and square and um, and you know things aren't twisted inside the mortise or the tenon itself isn't causing things to, to kick out, um, then the, the shoulder should close nice and tight right along that outside edge. And that's what you want is it doesn't matter if the interior part of the shoulder that's not seen isn't touching. What's important is that the outside part of that shoulder that you can see is touching. If after doing that, you find that the, the joint still isn't closing upright, I would check the mortise itself and make sure that the mortise is um, cut plumb and that the walls are nice and clean and square. And I would also check the tenon itself because what could be happening is when you're putting the tenon into the mortise, something is inducing a twist or, or an, uh, the, the two parts of the joint, the mortise and the tenon, may not necessarily be coplanar. They may not um, be cut exactly the same. And when you go to put them together, it's introducing some type of, of twist and the leg and the crest rail are not coming together coplanar. So go ahead and, and lower that shoulder first. But again, you only have to lower it, you know, a 32nd to a 16th of an inch, very little. It's not going to affect the look of the chair at all. Um, but if it still doesn't fit after that, go ahead and check the tenon and the mortise itself and make sure that they're coming together. Um, without putting in any any kind of twist into uh, the joint. And I think that should help solve your problem. So that's all I have for questions for this week. Uh, so please continue to send in your questions for the show uh, because we are dependent upon your questions to have a show. So uh, as always, if you have feedback, questions or topic suggestions, uh, just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. Or you can leave a voicemail like Jim did at 276-601-3123. And then you can also go to brfindwoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is efficiency with hand tools. And this is really one of my most favorite things to talk about because um, for years and years and, and still today, there has always been um, this this uh, this skewed opinion or the skewed view that hand tools are are really slow and uh, that's why nobody uses them and that's why you know beginners shouldn't use them because uh, they take too long to learn and um, and it's really slow and you'll never finish any projects and um, you know I've it's one of those topics and those things that I've been struggling to communicate to folks for a long long time really since I, I first started getting into using more hand tools and, and really intertraditional woodworking, um, just communicating the fact that hand tools really don't have to be that slow um, if, you, if, if you work a certain way, right? So, you know, let's start with a, a little uh, a parable, if you will. So, 
you know, if we if we take a look at at how fast maybe period work woodworkers actually were and how fast they could work, you know, there is documented evidence about the speed at which these woodworkers could actually work. Um, a lot of you can get uh, get a lot of information about this by looking at a lot of the old logbooks from the old shops that still survive. Um, one of those is a, is a book from the Lancaster, England firm of Robert Gillow. Um, and Mac Headley, who was the, he's the retired master of the Anthony Hay cabinet maker shop in Colonial Williamsburg. He wrote an article back in 1999 for American Furniture, and he went into a lot of detail on the workings of different shops in the 18th century and how things kind of went through the shop and what they did. And in that article is an entry from the uh, the, the book from the Robert Gillow shop, and it details what was um, what the cost of a simple chest of drawers was for that that came out of this particular shop. Now, we know what they sold the chest for, and by knowing that, it allows us to sort of back into how long it took them to build it. Because during the period, the labor rates were more or less fixed and published. Um, and there are, are books that will kind of go through that. Um, the guilds had their labor rates, you know, what journeymen should make, what a master should make, what, uh, what apprentices should make, if anything, if they were paid at all. So we know what a typical labor rate was. We know how long a typical workday was. Um, so based on what they were charging for the piece, we can use, usually get a good idea of how long it took them to complete the piece. So this particular chest of drawers, and I'll try to describe it. I mean, it's a it's a fairly simple chest of drawers with three full length drawers and two you know two short drawers over those three full length drawers. Um, flat scrolled bracket feet. You know, imagine sort of like a shaker chest of drawers with two drawers at the top side by side and then three full width drawers underneath. So this particular chest of drawers, according to the Gillow account book, required approximately 66 man hours to complete, including the finishing. So what that meant is the fact that they were working approximately 12 hours a day. These cabinet makers would finish a chest of drawers like that in three to four workdays, 18th century workdays, equivalent to about five to six modern eight-hour workdays, which in my opinion is incredibly fast. These guys were working from rough sawn lumber. They were doing all their work with hand tools. And the time that's noted in this book includes the time that it took to finish the piece, five to six modern workdays. Now, I doubt there are many of us who could finish a chest of drawers like this in, you know, an entire work week using the machines that we have available to us today. But these guys were doing it with hand tools and it took them three to four work days to finish the, the chest of drawers. So, um, you know, incredibly, incredibly fast. Another example is, uh, is in the Domini shop in, uh, in the Winterthur Museum. There is a tea table. It's a, a tilt top tea table, a round top with a three foot, you know, three feet, three legs and a pedestal base sliding dovetailed in again, very similar in design to like a shaker tripod, um, tripod tea table. Um, 
This one's a little bit more elaborate. It's more like a Queen Anne foot with some turnings on the pedestal. Um, the top was glued up from two pieces and then turned. Um, the, the pedestal was turned. The legs are cabriole-shaped legs with Queen Anne-style feet. Uh, it's made of mahogany, built in 1796 by Nathaniel Dominey. And according to the logbook from the Dominey shop, this particular mahogany table was built in nine hours. So less than a single workday to complete the table, including the glued-up two-piece turn top and the finishing. Nine hours using nothing but hand tools. Absolutely unbelievable how fast. I mean, there's no way that most of us could even finish this particular table in a week with the machines that most of us have access to, uh, never mind hand tools. And, and again, these guys finished it in nine hours. So um, we know that in the period, these guys were capable of working incredibly fast. So what folks like me like to do is try and figure out, well, how? How were they able to do that, right? Because most people today cannot work that fast with hand tools. Skill, of course, has a good deal to do with it, right? Most uh, most people that went into the craft in the period, of course, went in as apprentices and spent typically about seven years working six days a week, 12-hour days just to learn the craft. And after those first seven years working uh, 72 hours a week, you know, they got their, uh, their, their journeyman title and they could then either go out to work for themselves, hire, you know, opening their own shop, or they could potentially be hired by the master in the shop that they apprenticed at or find employment in another shop. Um, but they would have had a lot of time to hone their skills and get good at what they were doing, doing this day in, day out, six days a week for 12 hours a day. Um, so there is that there, there, there's no denying that they did have quite a bit of time to learn and develop these skills. But there are other ways that we see from some of the logbooks and some historical documentation how they were able to work that fast. Uh, one way was to specialize. So, for example, um, if you were building a table and maybe it had some turned elements to it, you might take the wood and provide that to a professional turner. And that's all that that person did was turn because they could turn it much faster and therefore much cheaper than you could. Uh, carving is another thing that was commonly outsourced to specialized tradesmen who did nothing but carving. So that is one way that they gained efficiency. But there were still shops such as the Townsends and the Goddards in Newport, Rhode Island, who did choose to keep all of their work in-house, and they pretty much did everything themselves. Um, there were some other ways that they were able to save time. And these are some things that we can employ in our own shops. You know, We don't necessarily have the ability to send something out to someone who specializes in that. You know, There are some people who, you, who certainly could do that, but not all of us have the ability to send our turnings out or send our carvings out to someone else. But some of these other things that we see by observing old furniture, um, are they are things that we can employ in our shops to help us move faster and, and work quicker and more efficiently with hand tools. Um, one of these things is to not finish surfaces that don't show. Um, if you look sometimes at 
for example, the uh, the underside of a table or the inside of a case piece like a chest of drawers, you might find that all they did was hit it with a, a four plane or a scrub plane and that was it. You know, it, it looks very rough. There's lots of tear out. There's big troughs from a heavily cambered iron. But when you step back and you pull your head out from underneath the table or from inside the chest and you put the drawers in, the piece looks immaculate. And again, that's because they spent all of the time making the outside of the piece look good and the parts that weren't going to be seen, they didn't spend too much time working on that. And that's certainly something we can employ in our shops today to help us move a little faster. And I I do that quite frequently. If I build a table, uh, I might only plane the show face and one edge of uh, of the table aprons, for example. The bottom edge of the apron, uh, sorry, the top edge of the apron, rather, might not get planed at all. Uh, the back face of the apron might not get planed at all. You know, it really just depends on how the table is being built. Um, but it saves a lot of time. Um, there are other efficiencies that maybe aren't so obvious. Uh, for example, if you observe the... Um, the curved surfaces uh, of an antique table, maybe something that has like a, a curved table apron. You'll see some tool marks in in areas like the bottom of those aprons that really are, are obviously were not made by a rasp or a file. Now they had rasps and files, but they were fairly rough tools. They didn't have the ability typically to create the, the very, very fine rasps and files um, that we have. And, and most cabinet makers didn't have a large selection of rasps and files like what we might have today. They might have a couple of rough ones, um, but they didn't have a, a whole big set with a lot of different rasps and files. And really, it, I don't think they relied on them too much because in all honesty, rasps and files are very slow tools. You know, you can get fairly aggressive with your rasps, but they leave a very rough surface. So that surface then needs to be refined with finer and finer tools, which is a very slow process. However, edge tools, on the other hand, are are quite fast. Um, but the problem with edge tools is when you run into concave surfaces. Flat chisels can't really get into a concavity. If, if the concave curve is kind of a shallow radius, you can use them beveled down and they work pretty well. But when you start to get into more sharper curves, um, flat chisels don't really help you much. You can try to use a, an out cannel style carving gouge, but they really have to be used at kind of a, an awkward angle in order to pair a square or vertical surface. Um, however, in cannel gouges, they make vertical pairing cuts and leave a clean, perfectly shaped concave curved surface in a matter of seconds. Um, and that's, this is one of the things that I learned just through experimentation and looking at old pieces. You know, I, I saw some old table aprons that really looked like they were cut with edge tools and not shaped with rasps and files because you could see a couple marks still in the table aprons where it looked like the edge of some kind of gouge caught. Well, I experimented with in-cannel gouges and found out that they were extremely fast at making these types of surfaces and they made them extremely clean. Right off the chisel, right off the gouge, I could go straight to finishing. There was no need to scrape. There was no need to go to finer rasps or sandpaper. I could make a paring cut 
with an in-candle gouge, and if that surface was smooth and ready for finish as long as that gouge was sharp. And in fact, when we look at books like uh, Peter Nicholson's The Mechanic's Companion, the only gouge he talks about in the joinery section are actually in-candle gouges. There's no mention of out-candle gouges at all. Um, and my my opinion and the, what I think why that is is that joiners and cabinet makers didn't really use out-candle gouges all that much, I don't think. I think the in-candle gouges are much more useful, um, especially through the work that I've done myself experimenting with these tools in my shop. Um, you know, I, I think the out-candle gouges were really more for carvers, and I think the carvers saw more use out of them than the joiners and the cabinet makers did. So we can learn a lot just by experimenting to, to come up with quicker, faster ways. So what are some other ways that we can get faster with our hand tools and work faster? Um, one of the, the things that I like to tell new woodworkers or, or new hand tool users is to choose your wood wisely. Um, you know, we can really help ourselves or hurt ourselves depending on the wood that we choose. You know, when we look at woods like oak, like maple, hickory, uh, beech, you know, a lot of these woods are quite hard. And if you look back at period furniture, you don't see a lot of furniture made from maple, from oak. Well, we'll get to oak in a second. There's an exception to that. But uh, 18th century furniture, let's say, you don't see a lot of that made from hard maple. You don't see a lot of that made from oak. You don't see a lot of that um, made from from really really hard woods. Um, there was an aesthetic reason for it, of course. You know, sure, uh, walnut was a beautiful wood. Cherry is a beautiful wood. Mahogany is a is a beautiful wood and very expensive because it's imported. So of course the uh, the rich people wanted the expensive imported wood to show their wealth. But there was a benefit to the cabinet maker as well. Woods like mahogany and walnut and pine and poplar, these are very easy woods to work with hand tools. I can work twice as fast with walnut and mahogany and poplar as I can with woods like like oak and maple, maybe even three times as fast because the oak and the maple in their dried form are so much harder. Where we do see an exception to that rule is when we look further back to where they were using more green wood in their work. Um, for example, the furniture like Peter Follensby builds from the 17th century and before, a lot of that joined furniture was built from green timber. It was split from a fresh sawn log. It was planed while it was still wet and green. It was um, shaped while it was still fairly wet and green. And that makes working woods like oak much, much easier. If you don't believe me, go out and get a piece of fresh sawn firewood uh, out of your firewood pile. Not something that's been seasoning for, for too long. Something maybe that you just cut this year. Get yourself a piece of oak out of your firewood pile and uh, take it over to your workbench and run a hand plane over it and see how easy it is to hand plane that fresh sawn red or white oak. The, the fibers peel away like, you know, like you're peeling a carrot. Um, whereas if you take a piece of kiln dried red or white oak and try to hand plane that, you're going to find a huge difference in the working characteristics of that lumber. 
So the wood you choose is really going to make a big difference in terms of the efficiency that you can get when you're using hand tools. So I really like to stick, you know, if I'm going to work with dry woods, I really prefer to stick with woods like uh, mahogany, like walnut. Cherry is typically the hardest wood that I will work with if I'm working with kiln-dried material building furniture. I don't like working with maple. The softer maples aren't too bad, but when you get into actual hard maple, sugar maple, you could be looking at a lot of work, and it's a really hard wood to work, a hard wood to to hand plane um, and move, remove any serious amount of material quickly like you can with those uh, those softer woods. So um, really pay attention to the wood you're choosing and the type of furniture that you're building. And if you're going to work with woods such as the oaks, maple, hickory, try to work with them in their green form as much as you can, you know, because they're much easier to work that way. Let them dry just before the final joinery maybe. Um, and I think you'll find that you can work much faster with those woods if you work with them while they are still green. Now, what else can we do to help us improve our efficiency? Well, what about our joinery? You know, these days, if you look at a lot of furniture designs, you'll see a lot of uh, joinery like uh, stopped stop joinery. For example, stopped dados, stopped grooves, stopped rabbits. If we look at period furniture, we don't see a lot of stopped joinery. If we do, it's typically short and small, like something like um, like in the gallery of a desk where they have all the little drawers and the small uh, pigeonholes for paperwork and things like that in the gallery of a desk. You'll see some stopped dados in there. But in, in larger casework, we don't see a lot of stopped joinery. Why is that? Because it takes a lot longer to make a stopped groove or a stopped rabbit or a stopped dado than it does to plow one completely through. I can make a, a through groove with a plow plane in a matter of seconds, less than a minute. I can make a through groove three, four feet long, no problem. If that was a stopped joint, it's going to take me a whole lot longer to make that joint. So the furniture was designed in such a way that we didn't need stopped joinery in order to make the piece and assemble the piece. If you can make through joinery, through dados, through rabbits, through grooves, much easier. Uh, dovetails are another example. We do see a lot of half-blind or lap dovetails um, because they're not too, too bad to cut. But through dovetail joinery is used far more frequently than half-blind because it's much faster. Anywhere where you can't uh, see the, the corner, you're typically going to find through dovetails. Half dovetails or half-blind dovetails, rather, are going to typically be seen only in areas where you need to hide the joinery. For example, a drawer front. You would use half-blind dovetails in the drawer because they didn't want to see the joinery. When you open the drawer, they didn't care about that. But from the front of the drawer, they didn't want to see the joinery. So you use half-blind dovetails so you don't have to see the joinery. But they take longer to cut, so they limit their use only to places where it was absolutely necessary. Anywhere where it was just a need to join two pieces of wood together at 90 degrees, the through dovetail was much, much faster to cut. So looking at the different times of, of joinery and choosing your joinery appropriately 
or designing your piece to use traditional joinery um, is a, a great way to improve your efficiency because by choosing your joinery to work well with your hand tools, you can use your tools much faster, you can build much faster, and you're not spending a lot of time trying to make joints that were really not designed or optimized for use with hand tools. And the final way that I like to talk about that we can improve our efficiency with our hand tools um, is our mindset. Um, and there's a lot of things that, that come into mindset. Your choice of wood um, you know, is part of the mindset. Your choice of joinery is part of the mindset. But there's a, other bits of strategy in there as well um, in order to pull all the pieces together. So, you know, let's think about when a lot of us first started. You might have worked off of a cut list, for example. Now, cut lists are great, in my opinion, for one thing and one thing only. And that is preparing your shopping list for the lumber yard. So I will use a cut list to kind of help me decide how many boards I need to buy. Because let's face it, just buying in terms of board feet does not always help. If a plan says you need approximately 50 board feet of lumber, well, there are a lot of different ways you can get 50 board feet of lumber. But if I see that I've got a top that is you know, 18 inches wide. Well, I know if I buy a board that's 10 inches wide, I can get that top out of two pieces and, and have a nice two piece glue up instead of four or five or six pieces and, and having a, a tabletop that looks like it came out of Ikea. Um, I can get table aprons. You know, I might be able to get two table aprons out of a board that's eight inches wide. Um, things like that. So I will use cut lists to help me plan what types of boards that I'm going to look for when I go to the lumber yard. So, and it'll help me to say, okay, I need two, you know, two boards that are eight inches wide. I need one board that's 12 inches wide. I might need two or three boards that are six inches wide. That's where my use of a cut list stops. And I do make cut lists for some of my projects sometimes. But again, it's more to help me with shopping because once I get that material back to my shop, the cut list goes out the window. I might take a rough measurement off that cut list to make my first or second cut. For example, I might, if, if my cut list says my legs need to be, need to finish out at 32 inches tall for a table, I might cut off a piece 36 inches tall to start making those legs. And that's it. That's where the use of that cut list will stop for me. Because once I have the over, rough overall dimension, everything else is dimensioned relatively. And what do I mean by that? Well, if I'm going to cut table aprons, let's say, let's say I'm making a rectangular table. So the two short aprons need to match in size and the two long aprons need to match in size. If my cut list says that those aprons need to be 24 inches long, the, the long aprons need to be 24 inches long. And I go and I measure both of those aprons and I cut, cut them out. One of them is 23 and 15 sixteenths inches long, pretty close to 24. I'm happy with that. So then I measure and I go and I cut the other one shooting for 24 inches. And that one I hit dead on at 24 inches. Well, here's the problem. Now those two table aprons are a sixteenth of an inch off from each other. If I go ahead and cut that joinery 
thinking that I got everything to 24 inches and I put that table together, that table is not going to come together square. So instead, I'm more focused on making sure that those two aprons have identical lengths, the, the shoulder to shoulder length between those tenants. I don't care if one board is a 16th of an inch longer than the other. I don't care if the board does not hit the measurement in the cut list. What I care about is making sure that when I cut those tenon shoulders, I hit that mark from shoulder to shoulder identical between both aprons. And that's going to help ensure that that table goes together square. I don't use a ruler. I don't worry about what the actual measurement is. I just want the two to be identical. And one of, if one of them is off, I will adjust the one so that it's identical to the other one. But I don't remeasure. I don't worry about what the actual measurement is. Um, one of the other mindset things that I like to, to get into um, to help me be more efficient is using wider boards. Um, you know, there's been this myth that's plagued us for years that says that, it, you know, if you glue up a panel, if you uh, like a tabletop, if you, you make a wide glue up from a bunch of narrow boards, that it's going to be more stable than one that's glued up from wide boards. The fact of the matter is this is just a, it's a plain, silly, silly argument. And, and I, I, ne I have not never bought it from the beginning and I still don't buy it today. Here's a fact. Wood is going to move in two primary directions. It moves tangential or parallel to the growth rings and it moves radially perpendicular to the growth rings. Tangential movement is proportionally greater than radial movement for just about every species of wood. So that is what causes our boards to cup because the board, when it expands from humidity, wants to move more in the direction along the growth rings than it wants to move across the growth rings. So if it's not moving the same amount, that board is going to cup. The proportion of that movement does not change with the width of the board or the way that it was sawn, right? That has nothing to do with it. It's still going to move a certain percentage along the growth rings and a certain percentage across the growth rings. So if you glue up a panel, let's say a 12-inch a, a wide panel, flat sawn, from three flat sawn wide board, from, from four three-inch wide flat sawn boards, that panel is going to move X amount tangentially and Y percent radially. That is going to be pretty much exactly the same as if you got a 12-inch wide flat sawn board. A 12-inch wide flat sawn board is going to move the just about the same amount tangentially and radially to the growth rings as four 3-inch wide boards that were glued into a 12-inch wide panel. The, the difference in movement between those two 12-inch wide pieces is going to be negligible. So this theory that a panel glued up from now or a board is more stable is just absolute bogus. Um, and then years ago, it was often touted to alternate the growth rings so that, you know, they smile up and then down. If you look at the end grain of the panel, you have this alternating pattern of growth rings where they go up, down, up, down, up, down. Um, and again, this doesn't result in a more stable panel. What it results in is a panel that develops a wave of alternate cupping instead of cup all in a single direction. I guess if you like that look, that's fine if you think that's more stable. But again, it's it's a myth that it's more stable. It's really not more stable. So with that in mind, 
in my opinion, for me as a hand tool user, using wider boards is a huge advantage. If I was going to make that panel from four three-inch wide boards, I would have to plane up four three-inch wide boards. If I'm going to use a single 12-inch wide board, all I have to plane is one 12-inch wide board. Well, it takes me just about as long to plane that 12-inch wide board as it does to plane one three-inch wide board. So in 25% of the time, I could have the whole panel flattened in, in a quarter of the time that it took me to plane the four boards that I would need to glue the panel up. Then I would still need to glue that panel up and then re-flatten it after the glue has dried. So by using a 12-inch wide board, I'm saving a huge amount of time as a hand tool user. Um, not to mention that, you know, when you, as I mentioned earlier, when you glue up a wide panel from a bunch of really narrow boards, it just looks terrible. Um, you may as well just go to Ikea because that's essentially what they're doing. Um, and, you know, since hand tools don't have any capacity issues, there's really no limit to how wide of a board you can work with. You know, if you're limited to, if, you, if you've got a joiner, power joiner, that's only six inches wide, for the most part, you're working with boards that are six inches wide or less. Whereas I can work with a board that's 18, 24, 30 inches wide with a hand plane and, and be completely unlimited. So I can make a single piece. I can make a case side for a case, you know, a chest of drawers or a tabletop out of a single wide board if I choose to do so without any more effort than it would be for me to glue up that same tabletop from a couple of boards. Um, so wide lumber is is certainly a, a mindset that really helps to get into as a as a hand tool user. Um, planing to standard thickness is another one that comes to mind. We have gotten hung up on three quarters of an inch because of all the commercial milling and commercial lumber. But if we look back at antique furniture, it's very rare that that furniture was all a standard thickness. It might be seven eighths. It might be three quarters. It might be 13 sixteenths, might be 15 sixteenths, might be some number of 60 fourths. You know, it's, it's very rare that that lumber was plain to a, a, a consistent standard thickness. Why? Because it's just, it takes too much time. It's, and it's really just not necessary to do. So when I'm working, what I will typically do, let's say again, I'm making a tabletop. I'll plane a board and I will, then I will plane another board. And if I, let's say I need to, to use three boards to get that, that tabletop, uh, out of, I'll plane one face of all three boards and then I'll go back and I will gauge the thinnest one, the thickness of the thinnest board. And that's what I'm going to plane all three of my boards to. I don't know if that's three quarters or seven eighths or 15 sixteenths or some other arbitrary measurement. And I don't care. All I know is in the end, that tabletop needs to be a consistent thickness. So I'm going to choose the thinnest board of the three plane all my boards to that thickness. I'm not going to get them down to three quarters of an inch because that might require taking way too much material off and waste way too much time. So I'll just plane them all a consistent thickness the same thickness as the thinnest board that I have there and be done with it. And it will take me far less time than it will to try and hit a standard three quarters of an inch all the time. So, um, you know, it's just another way that I save time when I'm working with my hand planes. Um, related to that, I might just 
plain one face of the board. And I mentioned this earlier. Um, you know, there's a, the phrase, turn your face to London describes the, the tactic, right? So again, let's go back to table aprons. If I'm planing a table apron, planing material for a table apron, I really only need one face and one edge to be smooth and flat and square because that's all I need to mark my tenons off of one flat face and one flat edge that is square to that face. That's it. The other edge and the other face can be completely unplaned. So sometimes what I might do, let's say I'm just making a, a straight table apron like you might see in a shaker table. I'll plane the bottom part of the apron and I'll plane the show face, the outside face. And I will make all of my marks for that table apron, well, for those tenons from those two faces. Then I'll go ahead and cut the tenons and assemble that piece. I still have not planed the inside of the table apron, and I still not have, have not planed the top edge of the table apron. After the, the piece is finished, uh, not finished, but uh, assembled, after the base is assembled, let's say, the and the aprons are glued to the legs, I can go back and I can plane the top edge of the table apron flush with the top of the leg so that I can get the top on. Doesn't matter if it's not perfect because you're not going to see it. I'm only planing it down just so I can get the top on. And the back side of the table apron, I can leave completely unplaned and still roughs on. There's no reason that that back of that table apron needs to be planed at all. Um, so I save a lot of time by not thicknessing, not planing that particular stock, not planing the back side of that stock. All I have to do is plane one side, one face. And then another way, um, shooting boards. We all love shooting boards because they make getting perfect square, smooth end grain so easy. Um, but do we always need that? If I'm cutting a piece that's going to be a table apron, we'll go back to table aprons again. Do the ends of that board need to be perfectly square? And for that matter, do they need to be planed? Well, to me, the answer is no. My critical measurement on a table apron is the shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder apron. I want those to be those to be knifed. With, uh, the shoulders need to be knifed with a knife line and square and crisp because that's what's going to be seen. The ends of the board are going to be buried inside a mortise. So there's no reason for me to take that tenons, that uh, apron stock, put it on a shooting board, and square up the ends of that stock uh, for what reason? It just wastes time. So it's another thing that I won't do is I won't use the shooting board unless the piece that I'm working on is going to, if that, you know, that, that square end is going to be absolutely critical. Um, sawing to a line is another one, um, and I've talked about this a lot. If you saw, you lay out your joinery, whether it's dovetails or tenons or whatever, and you tend to saw fat or wide of the line and then try and clean up with a plane or a chisel or whatever, you end up wasting a whole lot of time. And nine times out of 10, that joint ends up kind of loose um, if you have to fettle with it and mess with it after sawing. If you can train yourself to saw to the line and fit your joinery right off the saw, You'll find that not only are you much faster, but as your sawing improves, your joinery will get tighter and better as well. Because in my experience, no amount of fiddling with a joint after it comes off the saw makes the fit better. 
um, it always tends to loosen the fit, make it worse um, than it would have been if you would have just cut it right off the saw and fit it right off the saw. So when I'm cutting joinery, whether it's dovetails or tenons, I always aim for a perfect fit right off the saw. And I don't hit it right on every time. But if I only have to adjust one tenon instead of eight in a table, that saves me a whole lot of time. If I saw them all wide of the line and I have to adjust every single one of them, um, it's a real time suck and it, it adds a lot of time to that project. Um, using the tool, using the right tool for the job and, and setting it up correctly. Now, no tool is ever going to make you a better woodworker. But if you have the right tool for the job and it's set up properly, you can be much more efficient. Um, one of the ones that I, I like to go to is like a, like a rabbit or a dado. You can make a dado with a chisel uh, and a saw and clean it up with a router plane. But it's not a very efficient way to do it. A dado plane, on the other hand, is extremely efficient. You can tack a fence to the, the stock, run that dado plane against the the fence a, a dozen or two times, and you've got a dado that's the perfect width. You don't need to worry about cleaning it up or doing anything else. The plane itself does all the work for you. Um, similarly, a, you know, a plow plane for plowing grooves works scads better than a, a, a chisel and a saw and, and, and cleaning up with a router plane is going to. It works better and it works so much faster. So having the right tool and having it set up right is going to really get you working faster and more efficient with your hand tools. Um, and, and I stress setting them up correctly. You know, Tools like dado planes, like rabbit planes, like plow planes, they're not meant to take smoothing plane type shavings. They're really set up to take a relatively thick cut and remove material quickly. So you should take advantage of that if you have these tools. You shouldn't have to make a hundred passes with a plane to make a rabbit. It should really be done in a matter of seconds and maybe a dozen or two passes and you're done. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of different ways that we can become more efficient. And again, I always like to stress looking to the past um, because these folks had to make their living with hand tools. They had to be efficient with their hand tools. So for me, it's the best place to learn how to be more efficient with mine. Um, it does take some practice to get into these different mindsets and to think about these things from a different perspective, especially if you're coming into using hand tools more from a power tool mindset. If you learn the craft primarily on machines and you're now starting to introduce more hand tools into your work, these mindsets are, are kind of mind-blowing at first. Like, wow, really? You can do that? Um, you know, especially things like not planing all four sides and, you know, not four squaring every single board. It's unheard of in the machine world because all four surfaces of that board are typically used as a reference surface in the machine world. But when we start doing things with hand tools, all we need is a flat face and a square edge and that's it. The rest of the board doesn't really matter in most cases. So, and that's a hard thing to, to wrap your brain around when you're not used to working that way. So, um, you know, we can be just as efficient as our ancestors were, um, but again, we need to change the way we think about things. We're not going to produce furniture that looks like it came off of a machine. That's always going to be done more efficiently using a machine. If you want to four square every board and have 
a perfect tear-out-free surface on every surface of that piece of furniture, inside and out, that's always going to be done more efficiently with a machine. But if we can think about the work differently, think about the work in terms of being efficient with our hand tools, we certainly can be more efficient with our hand tools. Um, and again, you know, I think we have to change the perception of what's acceptable. Um, maybe every surface does not need to be planed or perfectly free of tear out, um, but only you can decide that for yourself. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt016. And in the show notes, you can find any links that I refer to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. And you'll find links to do both of these in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thanks again, everybody, for listening. And until next time, stay sharp, everybody.